Greetings, everybody, and welcome to the Elephant TV. Uh, my name is Joko Guthi. Uh, today, I'll be speaking to Abdullahi Boru. He's a security expert, largely focusing on the Horn of East Africa. Karibu Boru. The last couple of months, we have seen quite a bit of shifts around our election in East Africa. What does it all mean for, for the region? Thank you, Joe. The thing is, that, at least to my mind, there are two trends. One is, without a doubt, like you mentioned, there is a fair degree of democratic recession from, you know, few decades where <clears throat> there was a great deal of consolidation of democratic gains. Mm. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the outcome of that is the regular elections that we've had. Sure now, I mean, like elections have turned into a meaningless ritual that we can, with fair degree of certainty, sit before an election is held, tell you who is winning, and the only difference is, you know, by what percentage that they are winning. <laughs> right. And uh, so that is uh, one trend that is going on. But simultaneous to that, if you poll Africans, and Afrobarometer did that to a massive degree, Africans, and by Africans, I mean the general citizens, uh, they believe in democracy. And then, you know, it's over 60, I think 68% in their last poll showed that Africans are really interested in democracy. And you have an elite that is not interested in democracy. And so these two forces will always be contesting, but we need to introduce a third force. And that is, you know, what you call, you know, people in, this, in the industry of good governance, democracy, elections, and, and by extension, also development. Right. Um, for that, really, uh, you know, after the, after the end of Cold War, you know, USSR was defeated and obviously the new world order meant that elections, liberalization of economy, that made it very difficult for regimes like, you know, the late Mobutu Seko to survive. And there was a great deal of excitement around it. But I think that excitement, you know, for people who know better, was, was not founded on really genuine interest of some of these African countries. Right. Um, it was largely anchored in who can, most of people, most of these regimes are regimes that were ready to fight communism not taking its roots in the African continent. And but uh, um, related to that is the, the event of September 2011. Mm -hmm. When September 11th and, you know, this endless global war on terror was launched, all these interesting stuff around democracy and human rights were put on the side mm. by, you know, the same, um, you know, uh, external actors that were celebrating Africa having elections, you know, term limits and all these, um, you know, and that, once that was put aside, very entrepreneurial African countries and nobody uh, or no country has done that than Ethiopia. Melissa right. we jumped onto this and conveniently used that and said, look, Ethiopia is an anchor state in the region. Right. There is Al-Shabaab in Somalia. We are the ones who are going to provide that. And so the Western countries looked the other way. And Ethiopia, if you look at it, passed one of the most severe legislations around uh, counterterrorism, you know, um, the anti-terrorism pro proclamation. And that served two purposes, this legislation. Internally, it was used as, you know, a stick to hit domestic opposition groups, media, civil society organizations, you know, suspending civil liberties. And you've seen that in Kenya well, Security Law Amendment Act. Thank God, you know, the judiciary pushed back on some of the uh, some of that the provisions. Right. That was used externally. It was used to procure a lot of security sector training, mm. improvement, and of course money. Mm. The second thing that we need to bear in mind is um, the 2008 uh, um, financial crisis. 
mm. that you know western countries you know started looking inward right um you know they are having their own troubles at home council estates in you know in some of these countries why are we spending money when our own needs this money why are we taking this money in far off countries and you can tally the you know the decline in funding that mm. were going to good governance democracy and elections along you know mm. these two whatever and we exactly. can add you know um another another element that has not fully formed but it's at a very nascent stage right. they're coming to power of right-wing governments Absolutely. you know which were not interested in you know i mean like we had it here in the united states um you know donald trump looking at those countries as really not part of his priority mm. in the uk you see you see the same um so as a result um, you know, some of these domestic actors who have done an incredible job, who mm -hmm. have, you know, put a lot on the line, gone on the streets, whether it's use students movement, other movement, women movement, um, they have done a great deal of work. But that work of pushing some of this administration to change mm -hmm. takes more than internal actors. That is what I see playing out in the Horn and the East. Interesting. I mean, so, I mean, you already said, I mean, the rise of, you know, right-wing governments, and then to piggyback bank with this idea are linking it also with the rise of China and how, how, how do you how do you see the, also this global contestation happening you know on one hand I mean as you rightly said on one hand the rise of uh, the global uh, global far right but also on one hand also we're seeing uh, we saw the rise of China and then recently uh, recently we also saw the a growing rise of, of the progressive left particularly you know progressive international and uh, you know and that sort of thing but also now added to this, all this global administration, we have the corona pandemic thrown in there. So how, how do you see all this shaping up within, you know, within, so you have all these global contestations that were happening previously, yeah. you know, and of yeah. course, and of course, there was also the shift of, you know, the rise of uh, techno capital, but then also yes. now we have seen a, a, a pandemic thrown in there. And yes. how do you think it has shaped now this whole thing within the region? And what, what are some of the uh, actors and, uh, institutions and, and even perhaps even narratives that are coming out of uh, the horn uh, within this within this context. Horn has always been a very fascinating place mm. because because it has always had a link with outside. Right. <clears throat> you know, whether it's, you know, because of, you know, uh, the Red Sea, um, you know, you jump Red Sea, you're already into Yemen, you know, and as a result, you know, there is nothing new about, you know, geopolitical, you know, conflict or contestation being in the home. You know, I, you know, I mean, tend to remind myself that 79, 78, uh, 79, 78, 79, um, you know, the Ogaden War was one of the most crystallizing effect of that. You know, USSR that was supporting Siad Bahrain in Somalia shifted their weight to Ethiopia and the United States the same, and that shifted the war. You know, I mean, like, mm. you know, uh, Yemen uh, before was 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 one country, uh, Cuba, um, um, all of them had, you know, they were part, they were in, in, in Somalia at the port of Berbera. Mm. And so as a result, uh, when Siad Barre, you know, um, um, had issues with USSR, USSR moved to the other side. Now we just do not have China and the United States in a small, tiny place. Um, uh, in Djibouti, you also have the Gulf countries, you also have Chinese. And so what this does for most of the African governments is, 
you know, they don't need just to face east or west. Right. They can face all these places mm. without any due um, 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 uh, problems. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, like, for instance, immediately after um, 2018, Abi came into power and he needed, you know, um, you know, the foreign exchange was in, in an extremely dire shape. It's not the Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods institutions. It's mm. not China that gave him money. It's the UAE that gave him one billion US dollars and promised other $2 billion to stabilize, you know, its financial market. And that, I mean, like there is nothing free international affairs, everything comes with terms and conditions supply. And some of those conditions are not necessarily conditions that are conducive for an average person walking on the streets. Right. Right. With respect to China, I think one of the things that China has been around and, you know, there are ways to look at it. One is, do, do Africa have, or this region have, you know, infrastructure deficit? Yes, it does. Does China fill in that gap? Yes. But the question is, how does it do it? Right. You know, if you look at SGR, SGR is a good example of, you know, um, China wanting to, you know, have influence over Kenya and the political elite in Kenya knowing using this as a, as a feeding trough. Precisely. So the ability of not modulating how much can be eaten of public money now that Kenya is settled with all this debt, mm -hmm. I think that is what needs to be unpacked better mm -hmm. without also forgetting, you know, the environmental regulations that are involved. You know, a lot of these projects, um, you know, environmental impact assessment are done. Even when they are done, they are done poorly. You know, I mean, like when we know that we have got planetary crisis in the shape of climate change, we cannot afford just starting projects willy nilly projects mm -hmm. that have got impact on, you know, wildlife migration patterns, you know, on how much carbon that we are emitting into the atmosphere. I think right. that is the role of China. It's not then again, my, 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 my caution is that it's not just China and the United States. It's also all these other actors. You know, you look at Somalia, they're all Qatar plays, mm -hmm. uh, they're all Turkey plays, is an incredibly um, 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 influential role. And I'm not very sure if some of those roles are, are not inimical to the interest of Somalia. And so, and then when you add into all, into this complex milieu, you add COVID, where now COVID has, is being instrumentalized by, you know, some of these countries. You look at Uganda, you know, he said, President Seven is saying that, oh no, we are using COVID uh, protocol, people should not complain, while simultaneously is going to open development or inspect development project or start, you know, go and, you know, start new development projects. So it's been used in a very cavalier way by either, in, you know, in the case of Uganda, as well as in the case of Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And in Ethiopia, you know, a lot of the time, I'm, I remind myself that, you know, Abiy's term ended 5th October. The reason for the extension was uh, COVID uh, restrictions, but that didn't prevent him going against Tigray uh, in November. So I think COVID has also been fairly instrumentalized, right. denied the opposition. And you know, curtail you know civic uh, uh, civil civil rights, and 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 some of the impacts of this might be felt for foreseeable future. It's not, and a lot of the time we look at it as a clinical problem. It is, without a doubt, mm. but also it's a public order problem, all right? It is also an economic and livelihood problem. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time we just look at it from one side and then we end up missing that. 
Right. You know, last week, um, you know, uh, Missing Voices, Coalition of Human Rights Organizations in Kenya mm. produced a report on killings uh, of the by the police. I think 157 people are killed by the mm. police. And if you look at the data, enforcement of, you know, COVID protocols led during that time, the police killed quite a number of people right. in the name of enforcing, um, you know, the dawn to dusk curfew. And, uh, you know, I mean, like we are having another one um, uh, announced yesterday by the president. So you're looking at how COVID is no longer just, you know, um, an issue that you, you, you go, you need to get your job, you need to be tested, but it has got implications on all these elements. And that will be with us even after, you know, we are vaccinated or not. Interesting. I mean, that, that's a really tight analysis. I mean, just, uh, just to move in the conversation, uh, I mean, the last couple of years, there's been, has been, uh, conversations around, particularly even within the region, a growing idea around electoral authoritarianism, where uh, leaders, our, our political class, have learned how to manufacture democracy. You know, so it's really a game of musical chairs. So, I mean, I think we saw that in in, in Tanzania with you know what happened in the violence in Zanzibar, and uh, we saw that again in, <laughs> in spectacularly in Uganda just recently. You know, with the uh, uh, general election such that even the EU and the EU said that uh, they can conclusively say that who won the, the elections was free and fair. So, I mean, and so, but even just moving away from this conversation, what does this mean? Authorizing towards the idea one of liberal democracy, but then two of liberal democracy as not just, not just as a political idea, but a political, economic, and in some cases, social idea towards uh, fixing the colonial state. Uh, I think that is uh, that is a very hard question, but a question that nonetheless we need to wrestle with. Mm -hmm. You know, when elections have been reduced to a ritual, right? You know, I mean, it's a lot of the time, even for whatever its deficit, um, you know, um, elections. Uh, sorry, uh, democracy. Right. Election is just one element, but you know what? Some of these leaders have very cleverly you know, done is to ensure that at least this one thing, we will be able to win regardless of how, and then we'll say our people have elected us, all right? Um, so what happens is when we look at the election just on the day, on the election day, and then the results a few days later, we miss a bigger picture because right. there, are very, there are various elements of the state that needs to guarantee free, fair, and peaceful elections, right? If you're having a weak judiciary, mm -hmm. even if you have a contest after the election, if you contest the results of the election, what would the judiciary, the judiciary will not get you any redress. Look at the Tan Ugandan example. You know, mm -hmm. one member of the, you know, of the bench wanted to read, right? A dissenting argument. Right, <laughs> yes. And they, they turned off the light. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is that is where we are. You mm -hmm. know, thank God. You I mean you saw you know the Supreme Court in Kenya in 2017. You know they annulled the election. By those right? but they were revisited. <laughs> but they were revisited, and the system Yawakora, and you saw what followed after that. Precisely. If you do not have a strong judiciary mm -hmm. in person, you know, as well as the institution mechanism, it mm -hmm. becomes very difficult. The second one is the is the institution of uh, security. Right. You know, I mean, like when you have a police that has practically been turned into a military unit, like in mm -hmm. the case of Uganda, as well as in the case of Kenya, some of these gears that police wear, mm -hmm. 
and you know it's law and order that's beyond law and order they are they, we've militarized the police over the last few years and they do they, they, they make elections into a battlefield mm-hmm. you know that becomes very difficult and then the most important thing is the institution of electoral commission you know whichever form it takes if you do not have a strong personality if if it's money is still dependent on you know um uh, what side of the bed the executive has woken out mm-hmm. if the appointment are, are, are fixed for all practical purposes what kind of elections are we having you know um, are we just having elections in name when civil society organizations are using you know some of the NGO laws that we've seen uh, proliferate in the region what are we saying then we are having you know you've you've made the police use their power you've done the judiciary, you've, you've more or less, you know, um, crippled, right? You've more or less crippled all these institutions, state and non-state. So then are we really having an election? You know, I can sit here and tell you, um, elections in Ethiopia will be won by the Prosperity Party of Abiy. You know, I mean, like, and, you know, what you want ideally is, you know, the process is clear, the outcome is uncertain. But what we have now, you know, in our elections, the process is clear and the outcome is also clear we know then then what 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 are we having an election then right Right. the discussions around are we having an election or you know we are having you know as you put it you know electoral authoritarianism which Mm -hmm. is fairly illiberal right yes you know what what does that mean in terms of the future where you are going right Mm. and it's not just at the and, and 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 the most important thing that really strikes me all the time is look at the MPs election mm-hmm. across the country and including in Kenya. I think over 60% of MPs from last election did not come back. Mm. And, and it's been, not just, and it's not just that, that election. For the, for the last six elections, since 1992. Exactly, yeah, exactly. It's, it's the guys at the top would actually just stay, but the guys, <laughs> the MCAs, MCAs, I think it was 85% of MCAs. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that tells you that there is no way statistically Mm-hmm. That people can get rid of these guys, and then somebody tells you they have scored, you know, anything over fifty percent. So I think um, it 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 say it sends a clear signal that people are really interested in democracy. People are do not want military rule. People are not interested in you know what people quote unquote say benevolent dictatorship. There is nothing that is an oxymoron. There is nothing benevolent about dictators. People want a government that gets out of the way and people be able to do their work, right? right? You know, but provide healthcare, provide security, provide education, all these, and people to do. And for for a lot of the countries in the region, Hmm. election, people invest their hopes, their fears, and their dreams in election. Because we've sold election as this amazing antidote. Problems. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of time, people, I think we need to step back and tell people, look, it might not. You know, even if it's done in free and fair way, it might not. We need to be aware of that. And that's mm. why, you know, in, as much as we invest in political processes, which we should, but also we need to think about, you know, movement, you know, students you know, movement, the labor movement you know, a neighborhood movement. I mean, like we need to think along those lines in mm. order for us to be able to hold elections that are good, free and fair and peaceful, but also, you know, that we have other means of keeping these guys in check. And I'll, you know, I mean, like, like many, many people, when Kenya removed, when parliamentarians removed 
they recall clause for members of parliament. They knew what they were doing. Right. They knew they were not up to task. So I think we need to think that it's just one of the many tools that we can deploy, but we need to rethink, reimagine how we'll be able to uh, work with um, this state that was given to us as it is, default um, problematic as it is, what are ways we can begin to um, rework it. I'll touch on one little thing um, that you mentioned about, you know, um, techno-authoritarianism. Mm. For me, that is where probably, you know, a lot of work needs to be done. Precisely. You know, <laughs> there is a great deal of people thinking that, you know, all social problems can be reduced to algorithms <laughs> that can be thrown around. Absolutely. And, and all our problems will go away. Mm. You can see this obsession with people saying, oh no, ele election, you know, during our elections, can we have, uh, you know, electronic ele registration, electronic voter registration, electronic transmission of results, all these things. Mm -hmm. you, you're just putting a band-aid in a superstructure that is incredibly problematic, not just here, at even global level. Absolutely. So we've got to, to, to be aware that uh, technology doesn't, technology is just a tool. You won't be able to solve some of the institutional deficit that we have across most of these countries. Hmm, interesting. I mean, I think, I think the, the, yeah, I mean, the, the techno, techno, the techno, fidelism, fidel, as Yanis Varoukis calls it, I think is really something that we have to think about because it has, in my view, one of the things that's given, has given us a false illusion of freedom and freedom. Yeah, for, but. But yet, 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 it's proving to even create many, many, many more problems yeah. than we actually uh, had conceived. But this moving yeah. for something you had mentioned about, which I just moving the conversation forward uh, back to the question of security uh, in the Horn. I think I mean there's been a I mean, uh, security uh, analysts and experts and pundits talk about security in the Horn that we need to be careful for the Horn etc. But away from this narrative, uh, how should we be talking about security in the Horn? So it really, for me, is a question of how should we talk about security for the people? And there's always a sense that in terms of security in the horn is security for this thing called the horn. But, but in, in, all, in all the conversations and debates and uh, uh, policy instruments that uh, design, uh, there's, 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 there's little, little to that effect, at least from my view, around security for the people, you know, security for the people who live within the horn. It's always this, this idea called the horn and security in the horn. But, but how, do we, how do we move forward? But I think it's one of those conversations, even as we talk about uh, elections and because elections are about democracy and it's about the people. And I think security is, is, a, is a fundamental uh, aspect of uh, people-led democracies. But how do we start having conversations that uh, touch on the daily lived experiences of the people I think, I think, you know, um, as somebody who <clears throat> looks at the region, you know, for obvious reasons, even outside work, <laughs> I, I'm always fascinated. I mean, like, there is no one region that produces a lot of seasonal pundits and experts than the whole. Right. I mean, like, you look at other regions in the continent, mm -hmm. You, you, they are pundits. I mean, like it is an industry, unfortunately, everything is. Um, but the horn, I mean, it has got these... Um, you know, this particular ability where everybody um, project their feelings, attitudes, some season or some not. You know, there is always a sense that there's something existential going on in the home. Mm. You know I mean? There's always a sense that there is a crisis in the home brewing. There yes. is 
there is always a sense that people in the horn um, are facing, which is a lot of the time just an existential an, you know, crisis. Exactly. It's an elite projection more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Does the region have problems? Absolutely. Show me a region that doesn't have problems. Mm -hmm. There are problems everywhere. But a lot of the time, when you, like you said, you take the people out of the equation, it becomes just, you know, a very static, you know, esoteric discussion that goes on here. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, a cafe discussions, which now, you know, um, um, takes place in social media platforms where everybody, you know, is a horn expert. But I think you're right. I mean, there is a need to center people in this region and people who, you know, I mean, like they are facing, you know, you know, they are buffeted by incessant challenges consistently, some natural because of climate change, um, maybe um, alongside the Sahel region. This is one region that, you know, the planetary change that we see because of human activities will, you know, cause more problems. And that is because for a majority of people, um, you know, um, pastoralism is their mode of production still, right? And so whenever there is not enough rain, because pastoralism is not just, um, you know, mode of production, it's a way of life, you know, most of the, you know, um, 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 uh, people's idea, identity, people's ceremonies, marriage, weddings, death and funerals revolve around their wife, their their livestock. So because of that, they will be impacted more directly. And some of it is already backed in as we speak now, right? right. You know, when people export, including groups like Al-Shabaab export um, uh, charcoal to the Gulf countries, mm -hmm. I mean, they're cutting down trees, trees that, you know, are already in short supply. And so as a result, uh, there is that. I think, you know, um, there is a need to bring it closer to the people. And particularly the most vulnerable, the women and children, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's SGBV for children because of malnutrition and all these things. But I just also just want to say that all these things mm -hmm. do not act, they, they act in concert, they don't act mm -hmm. in, separately. Mm -hmm. So when you don't have a good state that, you know, provides the function of the state as it were, ideal or not, when you have that, you know, conflict is just one of the byproducts of you know, states that are fragile. You know, look at Somalia. You know, um, a lot of people want to look at it as a poster child of the region, um, and then everybody looks at it and then you know, um, extrapolate to other to, to other countries in the region. But at the same time, there are places that are acting as an oasis. You know, I mean, like challenging the question that we were having a conversation about the idea of nation state. You know, Somaliland right now. You know, yeah. I mean, like you have festivals, book festivals, film festivals, and all these things going on. And things, life is, you know, you go to Hargeisa and you go to Mogadishu, these are two separate countries. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, you look at places like Djibouti, things are wacky. Mm. And what strikes me as somebody who's interested in security, not just, you know, in, 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 the, in the narrow definition of what security is, the resiliency of people, and I'm not using this word as, a, you know, as a pawn, because a lot of the time, you know, resiliency is seen as somebody, um, you know, people are ready to take in more blows, miseries, whatever. No, <laughs> it's the reality that these people are so entrepreneurial. You know, people travel for work and leisure. People travel with their livestock across this uh, region. People trade, the level of trade, the Absolutely. level of um, 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 money transfer that is going on, despite the state being what it is in Somalia and particularly in Somaliland, Absolutely. is something 
something that can be learned. It's an innovation that came out of you know um, a necessity, but it's working. And then this 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 um, it, it fights against you know some of the you know traditional normative standards and frameworks that we are so used to. Uh, thanks for thanks for thanks for that. I mean, just my, my parting question is actually one question: is then, I mean, as you say, you're really unpacking all these narratives and. Uh, narratives and institutions, actors are working in concert. Uh, then moving forward, I mean, because the conversation around elections in the Horn has to be tied within all these other uh, layers and sub layers of uh, issues and players within. So then uh, again, I'm not, I'm not particularly around big narratives, but what are some of the narratives, even narratives and narrative options that we need to start having around how we start looking and thinking about the Horn and not, not, not as this, space that is you know space that is of interest to uh people who are not even who don't even live here but what are some of what, what are some of the local histories and narratives and even epistemologies that we need to start thinking about as we're thinking about the people who live within this this space i think that is a very important thing i mean like i was i was having this conversation with someone else um where we need to document the popular history of the of the region Mm. You know, there is, there is, I mean, a lot of the time we spend a great deal of time trying to counter, you know, the colonial and post-colonial histories, right. you know, because there's not one history. I yes. mean, like having this popular history, every time I'm struck as a Kenyan, uh, whenever I travel in the region or work in the region, is how this, um, uh, because of the nature of the state, this there is there is what we call the signals cross a lot of the time people do not talk to each other you know you meet somebody from ethiopia you speak to him and you're like why are we not talking to each other? i meet friends from you know uganda and i'm saying why are we not talking together and so sometimes the stove piping of histories identities is something that is something that i consciously try to rethink to reimagine you know right. i mean personally my grandparents are from ethiopia Right, and every time I find somebody from the south, when we start having conversations around marginalization, just as a theme, the stuff that pops out from them and the discussion that I have, there is a great deal. There is a there should be there should be um, an opportunity to cross pollinate a lot mm. of some of these things that work in one countries, the histories and identities, rather than you know being blocked in, in in some of these boxes where you know some people are in charge of the narrative generation and then they just release it out mm. horn is the most unstable region in the world right. but there are a lot of other wonderful things that that needs to happen mm. and that for me is one important thing you know the, the the popular history of these people i mean i sit here and i listen to music from all these countries why why is that not happening at a much grander scale you know i you know i can hear a bit of wrong you know by virtue of where i come from but there is a lot that we need to learn from that you know mm -hmm. there is a great deal of oral history of yes. this region yes. that hardly gets out there because it's not history history because it's, it's not, not written it's not official history <laughs> Right. And yeah. so, I mean, like personally, you know, I mean, what fascinates me is Ethiopia. And, you know, I mean, like you listen to age, you know, I mean, like the transition from one uh, at, at, at informal level, that is, but within these communities where after every eight years for over 200 years, this community has had a leader, a nominal leader that, you know, he doesn't tax you, he doesn't do anything, but he get, you know, he comes 
and does some of these spiritual functions, it's something that it's hardly spoken about. We get hung up about, you know, democracy as something, you know, leaders leave. Um, within the Borana and the Oromo communities, you know, Bagada for that 80 year period, there mm. has never been one point where there has not been free transfer of power from one Abagada to another one. Precisely. But these are stories that we hardly hear. You mm. go within the Somali communities, you know, the oral history, the poetry, not just the songs, but the poetry within these communities is something that is outside, you know, it will blow your mind if mm. it's explained. Some of them cannot even be rendered in those languages that we consider official history language, right? And I think that is for me is one thing mm. that, you know, if it's done in a nice way, the history of the people, the a popular history of the people. And I think that is one thing that um, I dream one day is done. Mm. Um, that that would be, it's an antidote to some of these stodgy discussions about nation state, stodgy discussions about, you know, colonial history. They are history, but there are histories out there mm. that we really need to wrestle with, engage with. Asante sana.